0: I want to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings. Last week, you remember, we laid out and studied the book of 1 Kings. We have been coming through the Bible, as you know, kind to of laying out the Bible as a framework, reference a framework, so you could begin to learn the Bible how it goes together. I'm going to talk to you about that this morning a little bit in the process of talking about Second Kings. Uh, my goal, obviously, is to help you any way that I can learn the Bible. The necessity of that. So many times, so many people uh, spend so much time, expound so much energy on trying to learn the Bible the wrong way, and uh, really never learn it, and either get discouraged in the process of it or Uh, just get all messed up and never learn it the way that they should. And that's one of the reasons why that uh, in this church, uh, you know, I'll spend time with anybody helping to lay out the Word of God as we talk about it on Sunday morning and Thursday night. uh, We, uh, you know, questions may arise that uh, you want to talk about or maybe you want to go through something on your own. That is fine. That's what we want to do. Our only goal in existence as in the church, the Bible says, is for the edifying of the body of Christ. And that's what we do, for the perfecting of the ministry, getting you ready to do whatever God wants you to do. And, of course, you need to know the Bible to do that. So last week, we came through the book of 1 Kings, and we saw the rise and the reign of Solomon. We looked at it as one of the greatest stories in the Bible, uh, as the apex of Israel's history. Uh, we saw one of the greatest concepts about Solomon, uh, more than any other man in the Bible, and that is the fact that Solomon is both types He's a type of the Antichrist. He's also a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw why. We talked about how that God is showing you something by that, how that, that is a picture of how closely the devil operates, uh, how he always, he always unfolds himself as a, a religion through religion, and that he imitates the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in every way that uh, he can. And uh, so uh, we're, as we came through that, we talked about how that the kingdom got split after Solomon. And that's a a thing you want to remember, how that the ten northern tribes, from this point on, are known as Israel. And the two southern tribes are known as Judah. And from this point on, we begin to see the demise of the nation of Israel in a very quick and finalization uh, of their deportation to Babylon and the destruction that takes place uh, in the book of 2 Kings. And today we're going to talk about the book of 2 Kings. And, of course, this if you are not your Bible there, this is also commonly called the fourth book of kings. I told you how that 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, even though they're named that way in your Bible, they're commonly called 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 3 Kings, and 4 Kings. In fact, some of your Bibles will have that at the front, at the title of it. But certainly the book of 2 Kings is one of the most important books in the Bible. And it is a book that uh, we really need to understand what happens here. Because uh, I'm not uh, sure... Uh, you know down the line someplace somebody will be listening to these tapes we're, we're building a library of every book of the Bible so that 20 years from now you know when somebody wants to learn the Bible that we can just give them a, give them a set of these tapes and uh, they can go through it and you know it saves a lot of time that they have the ability then to study and get the framework of the Bible uh, even though some of you are going through it week by week but uh, you're going to find that this is one of the most important books in the Bible. And if at some point you're listening to this tape uh, down the line someplace, we want to encourage you into uh, uh, following along with this. And I'm going to give you some insight today. Second Kings is a very important book in your Bible. And we're going to talk about it in a number of different aspects today. But let's go to the Lord and ask His blessings on our time and His Word today. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We love You so much and we thank You for all that You do for us. We ask you now, Father, in a very special way to be with us today. Give us wisdom and insight in all that we do. We love you. Help us to teach the Word of God clearly. Define it, Father, that these men and women may understand your Word in every aspect. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the book of 2 Kings, as I said, is one of the most important books in the Old Testament for one reason. Because at the end of this book, something changes. Now, As you start study the Bible and you learn the Bible, you're going to learn some language of the Bible. You're going to find that there are certain phrases, certain terms within the Bible that you need to learn. And as you learn them, you'll you'll see how it puts the the Bible together for you. And one of the things that happens here, and we're going to talk about this morning, and one of the things that show up in the book of 2 Kings, you're going to find uh, we're going to talk about the concept of, of what a dispensation is. Now, a dispensation is found, it's a Bible word. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where he talks about the dispensation of the fullness of times. When you learn your Bible, we've talked about it before, how the Bible says in, uh, uh, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, that all Scripture is given by inspiration to God and is profitable. We talked about that. And the Bible says also that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. When you and I rightly divide the word of truth, When you rightly divide the word of truth, you get the divisions in the right place. Some of those divisions are called dispensations. And when you study those dispensations, you're going to find that dispensations are times when God does something, and then God changes what He does, and He does something else. Now, if you're a Bible believer, and you're going to put your Bible together rightly, you're going to find that there are 11 dispensations in your Bible. 11 places where God changes something so dramatically that it, in, it it makes a shift in doctrine. It makes a shift in what God is doing, and God changes what He's doing, and He does something else. Those are so prominent in the Bible that you have to see them. And the reason why people get messed up in the Bible is because they don't rightly divide the word of truth. Now, we've talked about you know, study to show thyself a proof and all that, you know, and rightly dividing the word of truth. We know all about that. And we talked about the fact that you divide the word of God out historically, doctrinally and inspirationally, and all of those things. When you rightly divide the word, you divide it in a lot of ways. But one of the major ways that you have to divide it is with the dispensations. And again, the dispensations are... The time that God is doing something, and then He stops doing it, and He does something else. One of the obvious major ones in the Bible would be the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is a major change in your Bible. That is a dispensation. And you're going to find, as I said, there are 11 of them throughout the Word of God, and in time, uh, you need to learn that. Now, you have in Christianity today something that's called hyper-dispensationalism and you're going to run into this if you do any kind of uh, talking with people about the bible you're going to find people who are what they we call or what they call hyper dispensationalists. Now the word hyper means critical, super, super fast. We talk about a ki- kid being hyper. it means he he jumps around a lot he's got a lot of lot of energy to burn off. A hyper dispensationalist is someone who divides the Bible up so closely that he literally Divides it up where it isn't any good for anybody. And you're going to find, if you uh, go down through, uh, uh, like I said, history, you're going to find that there were some great men, uh, great as far as the world's concerned, who were authors that wrote that were hyper-dispensationalists that you've got to watch their material. And what they do is, a hyper-dispensationalist comes to the point where he throws out not only... He, he comes to the point where he throws out all of the Bible... Except just the Pauline epistles. And he'll tell you that for you as a Christian, the Old Testament means nothing, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John means nothing, the only thing that really means anything to you is the writings of Paul. And he divides the Bible up so critically that he throws out and says that none of it is to you. Now, if you're a Bible believer, if you're someone who has a good balance in your life, then you're going to take the position of being a moderate dispensationalist. And you do that by letting the Bible show you the natural divisions. And I teach you that all the Bible is for you, but not all the Bible is to you. And that is a very crucial thing to understand. All the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written directly to you. And that's where a hyper gets out of whack. He cuts it so thin, and he cuts it up in such pieces that He leaves literally nothing for you and throws away three-quarters of your Bible. Where a moderate dispensationalist will understand that all of the Bible is for you, but not all of the Bible is to you. And then as you come through those 11 dispensations, you'll find uh, what God is doing. And really, it just helps you. You remember how I showed you when we studied Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis, the book of Genesis, and I showed you how that you broke Genesis down by stories? That there was 50 chapters, but there's like 10 or 11 stories. And if you try to remember it by the 50 chapters, you get lost in it. But if you just try to remember it by the the, uh, stories, it's a lot easier. Well, that's what the Bible does with 11 dispensations. If you try to remember all of the Bible, it'll take you the rest of your life. But if you break the Bible down into the natural divisions, the dispensations that God puts naturally in His Bible, that's how you remember it. And when you study the Bible from that aspect and you put it together. Now, I, we talked last week about how to, how to study the Bible and uh, how to lay the Bible out. And we know the Bible says that uh, you have to divide it out, rightly dividing it. And when you look at it, I kind of I look at it like this. This is how I do it. I look at it from the, from the first division is the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when I start to teach somebody the Bible... That is a basic breakdown. That would mean the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We've come through that. We've talked about it on Thursday night. We've laid it out. The next aspect of learning the framework of the Bible is what we're doing right now. And that framework of the Bible is dividing out the books. Remember, I'm showing you every time we study a book, I'm showing you the division of that book. I'm showing you how it divides itself out. Sometimes they divide themselves in two sections. Sometimes they'll divide themselves in three sections. Sometimes they'll divide themselves in four or five sections. But when you come to those books, you want to look at the books like you want to look at the whole Bible by the divisions that are in it. And when you start and then the next thing would be the the, the dispensations. And as you learn those dispensations, as you divide out those books, as you divide out your Bible, you have the basic concept. Once you learn that structure, you now have the ability to go back, and then you divide out the chapters. Then you divide out the verses. And in some places, you can divide out the phrases or the words. And when you divide them out, (coughs) you divide them out how they represent something doctrinally, And remember, the doctrinal aspect will always come back and deal with the theme of the Bible, which is the second coming of Christ. Or you'll divide it out inspirationally, how it applies to you in a spiritual example or an example, and it shows you something about your life. We've seen many, many examples of this, and of course, you divide it out historically. The problem with most people is that they try to jump into the middle of the Bible first. They try to get in and try to figure out the verses, figure out the words, figure out the chapters, and never figure out the outside structure. Now, you can do both at the same time. But you always want to balance it out that you're learning the outline of the Bible more than you're learning the inside of the Bible till you get the outside done. Otherwise, you're going to frustrate yourself. You're going to be scratching your head saying, What does this mean? What is this here? How does this lay out? When the truth of the matter is, if you would take the time and lay out the books of the Bible in the process by which we're doing it on Sunday, and get the framework, a lot of those questions would answer themselves. And it's just a matter of learning how the Word of God goes. I like the ability that we have the time on Thursday night. And I'll throw a lot of little kickers out where I really won't say something and, and let you bring it up on Thursday night where I can spend more time dealing with it. And that we know we'll, I do that a lot. But I enjoy the opportunity of being able to sit down one-on-one to break down the big pieces. Because I know this. I know as we're going through the Bible, we're we're dealing with some big pieces here. And some of those big pieces need to be broken down. And that's why on -on one-on-one situations or the time that we have on Thursday night, you can ask those questions and we'll lay it out and we'll put the thing uh, in its proper place. But you're going to find that dispensations in the Bible are very crucial. And if you don't have them, you don't know the Bible. And you've got to put them in the right place. You've got to balance yourself with them. And here's another rule of thumb I always use with the Bible. My rule of thumb is this. I never make something where there isn't something already there. A lot of guys want to force something into the Bible. And that comes with just being young and trying to learn and all of that. I understand that. But a rule of thumb, and I did the same thing, I mean, I, I, I did when I was young, but I quickly learned that if you really want to learn the Bible, don't ever make the Bible say or teach anything it doesn't obviously say. Now, obviously, there's things, there's places right now that I could go to that I know there's something there, but I don't know what it is. You know what I do with that? I don't do anything with it. I let it go, and f- I mean, I may look at it for a while, but if I can't get a clear thing on it, I let it go. Because I know that if God wanted me to have it, he would give it to me. And I go on with something else because now I know the key to figuring that out is figuring something else out first. And when you do that, how many times I've come back? Well, I'll tell you on this trip. Every time I go away from, and I don't know why this is. Maybe God's saying go away more often. I don't know. But every time I get away, God always answers a couple of big questions for me in the Bible. You know, you're sitting on a plane, you're you're stuck someplace because the plane's late, or you're over here, you know, or you study here and you're reading this, and then suddenly God will take a whole bunch of things and then put them together that you were looking at, and bang, there isn't a time that I haven't been someplace that God... Because your thinking process, you're out of your routine, and whatever the reason is, God will give you and put those pieces together, at least for me anyhow. And I'm telling you, you've got to just take it in that stride, and you've got to get the framework of the Bible down first. And that's what we're trying to do. If you have been following along, law, now I'm not saying you don't study other things and try to put things together, that's fine. But you've got to make sure you're getting the framework down. Because you are going to frustrate yourself to no end trying to dig out the stuff in the middle without understanding the stuff that's around you. And that's why I'm saying, you've got, we've talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We're now dividing out the books in the Bible. In time, we'll go through the dispensation. And, we'll, and and then in time we'll show you how to, and we're doing that on a regular basis because I'm using examples, even though I'm laying out the structure, I'm giving you example upon example and taking time of showing you how to break those chapters down. That's the best way to do it, and that's the way God intended for it to be done. So when we come into the book of 2 Kings, we have a major shift here. Genesis, cha- uh, Second Kings chapter 25 starts an incredible, end, or ends one dispensation and starts another. And it has to be one that you have to see. And this major shift in doctrine and teaching is so dramatic that if a man doesn't see it and he misses it, he's never going to get back to the Bible on track. And he is going to, he is going to wind up being messed up someplace along the Bible when it comes to <coughs> the nation of Israel. Because what we've got here is we have what the Bible calls in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 the start of the times of the Gentiles. Now the times of the Gentile is a major shift in your Bible. And it is a shift that you must understand that you cannot misplace. Because if you do, it's going to affect you and everything else you try to study in the Bible, and it's going to taint your doctrine (coughs) in every way, shape, or form. Now, keep in mind, here's what we have seen so far. We started in Genesis, and we saw how the Genesis was the book of the beginnings. Everything for the rest of your Bible is formulated in the book of Genesis. Genesis. We saw how that God got them down into uh, down into Egypt. We saw God brought them the calling out of Abraham. We saw the formulation of the of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even though they're all types of Christ and they picture great inspirational things, the line is going that God is calling out and developing a nation of people. By the end of the book of Genesis, they're down in Egypt. And then in Exodus or Genesis, they're down in Egypt. In Exodus, God brings them out. They start on a 40 year journey. And we see that through that 40 years, God testing them and dealing with them and bringing them through all of the problems. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, they go into the land in the book of Joshua. We see the conquest of the land, the warnings, and God gives them the land that He promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Then we see the book of Judges, where they go into apostasy. And we get a clear lesson and a clear warning how that if you're going to be successful, and whatever God wants you to do, whether you're Israel or whether you're the church, you have to stay with the Word of God. And we see their depravity in the book of Judges. We also see the little book of Ruth. And we talked about that. And then we come in from Judges into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. And now we have seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of Israel getting into the promised land. And now in those four books, we see the monarchy of Israel start. We see the kings of Israel. We see the literal temple being built, where up to this point they used the tabernacle in the wilderness. We see all the things solidified, all the things coming together. And we find in Solomon, date 1000 B.C., Israel at its highest point in the history of the world. And then we watch its demise. Then we begin to see not only its demise, but why it fell. We begin to see all of the things creep in. And we begin to see after Solomon, he splits it. He's not a dispensation, but he shows you the two types. And we see the kingdom becoming uh, more degenerate. We see the kingdom being split. We see that in 1 Kings. One king, bad king after another. We talked about it last week. Now in 2 Kings. 2 Kings breaks down really simple. Real easy. It breaks down like this. It's real easy. Chapter 1 through chapter 17 focuses on the ten northern tribes and then going into captivity under Assyria. The king of Assyria is Shenacherib. And yes, he's one of the 18 types of the Antichrist. The prophet during this first 17 chapters is Elisha. In chapter 18 through chapter 25, it focuses on the two southern kingdoms, Judah. And we see them going into captivity into Babylon. And yes, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He is a type of the Antichrist. And the prophet during this time is Isaiah. Now, oh, you're getting some information today to help put some things together. Now, here's what we've got. We come up through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We got into Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And now we're in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Those four books of your Bible make up the heart of the nation of Israel. Now, if you're going to step back and look at your Bible in perspective, then you're going to find that during those four books, during 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, we haven't talked about Chronicles yet, and I'll explain Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles next week. Because First and 2 Chronicles are not... Books that carry on the continuation. First and Second Chronicles are commentaries of two of the other books that we've already talked about. We'll cover those next week. But what I want you to see is step back now. When you see 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, during those books, all the writers of the major and the minor prophets take place. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of those prophets. Hosea, uh, I'll the books that deal with the post-captivity books, which are just a few. We'll talk about those when we get to it. But you're going to find this is how you put your Bible in perspective. During those four books of the king that we have just studied the last four weeks, before the times of the Gentiles start, you have all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Hosea, Every one of those major, and remember now, the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is real simple. The major prophets are the large books in the Bible. And I know that sounds stupid, but it's not. I, I've actually talked to people that thought that the major prophets were uh, more important than the minor prophets. No, no, no. No, it's dealing with a major and a minor is dealing on how long their books are. Ezekiel has 48 chapters. Jeremiah has 52 chapters. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Hosea has 12. Some of them only have one. Obadiah has one. Uh, Nahum, or not Nahum, but uh, uh, some of the other ones just have one or two or three or four. So the major and the minor have to deal with how long the books are, not the stature of the man that wrote it or his importance. And, of course, you need to understand that all of those books are written during 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. So you begin to see that the breakdown is real simple. The first 17 chapters deal with the 10 northern tribes. The second, the, uh, the second uh, 18 through 25, deal with the southern tribes. And what we see is at the end of each point, when you get to chapter 17, the northern tribes go into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. When you get to chapter 25, the southern tribes go into captivity under Babylon. And then the split takes place. And it ends. God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Never again will Israel be the nation that she was. And we'll talk about that and see that in just a little bit. Why that is. We'll talk about it. But you need to understand that this is a major shift in your Bible. And this starts the times of the Gentiles. Let me define that. Very simply, the times of the Gentiles is when God is finished with the nation of Israel because of their sin and because of their apostasy and God takes the kingdom of heaven from them and turns His attention to the Gentile nations and turns world rule over to the devil and the Gentile nations. This time period in your Bible runs 400 years. In the old boys it used to write... They used to call it the 400 silent years. Why? Because it's the 400 years from 606 B.C. to the first coming of Christ where God speaks to no man. There's no revelations from God. There's no prophets from God. There's no message from God. Anything that anybody got, they got by reading what God already wrote in the Old Testament. And that is so crucial that you understand that. We don't have time to get into all that today, but... We'll cover it in Thursday night and time to time and other places as we get into it. But just keep that in mind. Now this major shift, as I said, is so important. That if you miss it, you're going to wind up being a denomination of people. Or you're going to wind up being a Christian that thinks that God is totally finished with the nation of Israel. Because you see this absolutely dramatic shift where God is finished with the nation of Israel and God turns it over to Gentile rule, you actually think that God is finished with them, and that will lead you into the mindset, which we teach today in our churches, of an amillennial or a postmillennial view, which simply means that Christ is finished with Israel, the church has taken the place of Israel, and God is never going to restore the nation of Israel again. And my friend, that is not true. In fact, In the greatest book in the Bible on Christian doctrine, the one book in your Bible, and oh, wait till we get to this one, the book of Romans, book by book, chapter by chapter, lays out the doctrine for the church. Paul devotes three chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, to that very same issue, showing the church unequivocally That God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Helping you understand what God is doing with Israel. And in showing you in chapter 11 that God is going to restore Israel. And he says, brethren, be not wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There's coming a time when God is going to restore that Jew. The only way you put it all together is to get them 11 dispensations down the way God wanted you to get it. And when you get it, you got it. When you get it, you understand what God is doing. So with all that in mind, and that's a lot for your mind, but with all that in mind, let's begin to break down chapter by chapter and lay out this great book and show you how this thing works. Okay? Now, we have chapter 1, 2, and 3. Now, remember now, we're dealing with the tri- uh, 10, 10 northern tribes, and they're going to go into captivity with Assyria in chapter 17. So everything from that point to chapter 17, 1 to 17, is going to be built around that. We find that during this time, we find Elijah's ministry finishing up, and he passes his ministry to Elisha. And Elisha now takes over. You're going to find in chapter 2, verse 11, the great story of Elisha going up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And everybody likes to talk about that story. And everybody likes to look at that story. And that's an interesting thing. But the bottom line is, that is a picture of the second coming of Christ. You're going to find that Elisha, Elijah excuse me, is one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. You're going to find the key word there in chapter 2, whirlwind and you're going to see that Elijah going up is a picture of the post-tribulation rapture of the saints going up, and that's how that whole thing lays itself out in chapter 2, verse 11. We also begin to see a continuation of the decline of the leadership of the nation of Israel. I don't know, and I'm going to try to do this a little bit later on, but I don't know how to lay out for you the wickedness and the... Total perversion and depravity that has taken place in the nation of Israel during this time. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, really don't, I don't know. It, it, it's so overwhelming. I mean, I can say it, but I can see by the looks on your faces, you don't get it. And I'm going to try to make it gettable today where you leave here with an understanding of what it was. And how wicked it is. But we continue to see the decline of the nation of Israel as it literally falls apart. Last week we talked about Ahab. In fact, we left off with Ahab. Ahab ends the last book. He gets killed at the end of the last book. And Ahab, as we know the Bible said, was the most wicked king ever in the history of Israel. We saw how that Ahab and Jezebel represented the Antichrist and his religious system by which he's going to run the world, by which he ran Jerusalem and ruined the nation of Israel. Now this week we're going to see in chapter 3 verse 1 his boy Jehoram. Jehoram takes over after Ahab and uh, he's as wicked as his father was. In fact, the wickedness is in unparalleled proportions. It's really hard to perceive the ungodliness that all these other nations brought in. And that's the key I got to focus on. This is why God told the nation of Israel not to be part of the other nations. The other nations were Gentile nations, and they were completely being run by the devil. And the devil was bringing all manner of religion of wickedness and and all of the religion in its wickedness that was going on, worshiping everything and all things considered. It was the most unbelievable time. And God tells them over and over and over not to be like the other nations. In fact, when God wrote Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, that great book of Romans that deals with the doctrine of the, uh, uh, for the Gentile church, he takes chapter 1 and he shows you the depravity of the Gentiles on no uncertain terms. And Romans chapter 1, without a doubt, is the greatest chapter anywhere in the Bible that shows you how wicked the Gentiles are, and it's that same wickedness that you'll find Back here, because that's exactly what God had in mind when He was writing Romans chapter 1, the wickedness of the Gentiles during this period of time. Now, even though there is so much wickedness going on, this book has some great New Testament principles. Even in the midst of all this depravity and all this wickedness, I'm telling you, there are some great concepts here that you need to learn and understand. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, we saw the death of uh, uh, Ahab's son come on. We saw the decline. But when we get to chapter 4, we see Elisha's ministry. Oh, what a great ministry it is. And here in chapter 4, we have the story of a certain woman. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the places where God talks about somebody and He doesn't give their name. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Those will be the most personal stories in the Bible they will have the most personal applications of all the stories you'll find in the Word of God. And the reason why God says a certain woman and doesn't give you her name, very frankly, is God wants you to put your name in there. And I'm telling you, I have never seen it fail that when a woman isn't named or a man isn't named in the Bible and they're left as an anonymous person, it is one of the most Unbelievable spiritual lessons that you'll ever find on a personal level simply because he's drawing your attention to this woman could be anybody. You know, we do the same thing in America. Who hasn't been to the tomb of the unknown soldier and you don't wonder who it is? And you start to make all kinds of analogies. Well, maybe it was my brother that was lost. Or maybe it was so-and-so, a friend of mine. You never know. You don't know who it is. The fact that it's anonymous always brings about an air of mystery that it could be you, or it could be anybody. And that's exactly what God is doing here when he says, a certain woman. And the story about this woman is so basic, but so powerful, it's, it, it's hard. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And you know how the story goes. A woman is a widow. She doesn't have anything. And she meets the prophet. And the prophet says, go get some vessels. God is going to take care of the fact that you have nothing. And he, he, says, he says, go get as many as you can. No, not a few. Get all that you can. And every vessel she gets gets filled with oil. And the vessel keeps getting filled. She keeps getting more. And before she knows it, she's selling the oil. And she's making all kinds of money. And her problems are solved. And she, because the man of God came and God looked on her affliction and told her to go get the vessels. And God filled them with oil. She now had the money to do anything she wanted to do. And the picture is this. The oil is the Holy Spirit of God. Your body is the vessel. And you know what that whole moral of that story is? You know why she kept getting the vessels and he kept giving the oil? And as many vessels as she got, that's how much oil she got. There was no end. If she would have got 10 million vessels, she would have got them all filled and she could have had more. You know what the moral is? You can have all of the Holy Spirit of God in your vessel you want. That's the moral. Don't give me this thing about your limited ability. You can have all that you want of God. This woman, there was no limit I'm telling you, a certain woman, write your name in there. I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care if you're a man or I don't care if you're a woman. I don't care where you're at in your spirituality. If you're saved, the bottom line is this. The only thing that is going to deter you from being everything that God wants you to be is you. This woman could have as much as she wanted. The only thing that stopped her is when she said, I'm not going out to get another vessel. And God said, okay. The only thing that's going to stop you is you. God wants to keep pouring that oil in your vessel, and as much as you're willing to go get it, and as you're willing to take it, God, you can have as much of God as you want. Great lesson. Then in the same, in the same chapter, in verse 8, we have another great story. And I love this one. This woman is anonymous too. But you're told where she's from. It's the woman of Shunem. And the woman of Shunem, the Bible says about her now, oh, it says that she was a great woman. I always watch those things. One place I said she was a certain woman. Here it tells you she was a great woman. You know, there's only two women in the Bible that the Bible says, you ever uses the word great with? One of them's here. The other one is, you figure it out. It's only two. But those two women will give you an unbelievable picture and an unbelievable story. I'm not going to tell you where the other one is. Study the show that self-approved. But this woman of Shunem was a great woman. And when you see, read the story, she she says to her husband, you know what, there's a man of God around here. And we need to take care of the man of God. And we're going to build a little prophet's chamber. So when he's traveling through here that he has a place where he can hang out. And it's the way she furnishes that little prophet's chamber that tells me and tells you if you're paying attention about her spirituality. You wouldn't think just picking out furniture would say anything about a woman's spirituality. But it does in this story. I mean it really does. I look at her motive. She wanted to do something for the man of God that was God's man. And she knew that he was traveling back and forth. And she says to her husband, let's build us a little prophet's house. Let's build us a little shack on the back where he can hang out. And here's what we'll put in it. Oh, boy. They put in a bed. They put in a table. They put in a stool. And they put in a candlestick. And when they put those four things in there, you have got a picture of this woman's spirituality. You've got a picture of what it takes to have a relationship with God. And she understands because she gives the man of God exactly what you and I need. You know the first thing she put in? Well, I don't know if it's the first thing she put in. The first thing I'm going to tell you about, she put in the stool. That stool represents study. It represents studying the Word of God. Another thing she put in there was a candlestick. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Another thing she put in there was a table. That's a picture of fellowship. And the last thing she put in there was a bed. That's a picture of rest. Wow, those four things give you the exact picture. And then we're not done with it yet. Because this is one of the the greatest lessons on the ministry and winning people to Christ For the cause of Christ that you'll ever find in this world. Because she has a boy. And that boy dies. And when that boy finally dies, Elisha shows up. And Elisha does the strangest thing you ever saw in your life. That boy is dead, laying on a table or a bed. And Elisha crawls on top of that guy and puts his mouth on the dead man's mouth puts his hands on the dead man's hands, and puts his eyes right where the dead man's eyes are. And lo and behold, it worked. That kid comes alive. Somebody said, Ain't that the weirdest thing you ever heard? Yeah, that is. That is. And I also tell you this, when you find something weird in the Bible, you better stop off, put out the RV and camp for a while, because you've got something there. What you've got right here is a model for ministry. You know what the problem with ministry is today? You know what the problem with missions is today? And let me just say this to you. I don't know where you're at in your Christianity, but let me just give you an inside thing here. Missions today is a flop. Missionaries today, wherever they're at, have failed. Missions, as far as the body of Christ reaching the world, is the most unbelievable failure the world has ever seen. It's much like Christianity in America and the failure that it is. You know what's wrong with it? We Somewhere along the way, we have lost the ability to identify with people where they're at. One day when we were home on our trip, we do this as an annual pilgrimage. We go down to Amish country. In Amish country, there's a place where they ride a little horse and buggies. And all the men have beards, they have straw hats, they have the same color blue shirts with pants with suspenders. They don 't allow to have zippers, everything has to be buttons. The women all wear little bonnets. they wear long dresses they don't have cars they don't have they don't have uh, they don 't have uh, uh, electricity in their homes they they don 't have any modern conveniences and when you get out to Amish, now, now today they're a novelty, and people like to go to Amish country because. They have Amish, everything's Amish down there. Come to the Amish restaurant, get an Amish breakfast, get an Amish lunch, get an Amish dinner, get a good old, come to Amishville and get a good old Amish breakfast like you can't eat anywhere else in the world if you don't eat Amish food. Because because they're down here and ride horse and buggies, they, create, they must be great cook. They make their own butter. You see, it all plays on that. This is a more simple lifestyle. This is the way it w- used to be. You're going back in time. You're going back in history. Almost makes you want to grow a beard and get a straw hat and put on suspenders and go be one of them, you know. And you're down there, and truly, you walk down there, you know, you're driving your car, here comes the horse and buggy, you know. You've got 350 horses. He's only got one. But he passes you on that inside, you know, and he look over, you know, and there's Brother Yoder. And he's waving at him, and he's waving at you, you know, and there's with the bottom with a little baby back there and all the little yoders looking out the back thing there everybody says isn't that cute well let me just tell you something there was a time when the Amish and the Mennonites were a fundamental Bible believing group there was a time when they literally understood the Bible and were a soul-winning fundamental Bible believing with a right Bible group that actually won people to Christ and did some great things for God. Today, you don't go down to Amish country to find out what they believe. They're having an absolute impact on nobody. You know why? Because we in a world with Mustangs, Corvettes, Tauruses, Broncos, you see, we want to be like the Amish. We name our cars after horses, but we really don't have real horses. We, don't want, we look at them now and we think, well, it's nice to be down here. And we got great breakfasts. But you know what? They're a weird bunch. I mean, they're, they're out of touch with reality. <laughs> Who in the world wants to go join the Amish church? Why, well, they wouldn't even let you in. you got them got the right clothes on. You don't have a beard the right length. You don't have this. I, I, I tell you, it is the, they are looked at today as the weirdest group in the world. Everybody likes them because they're a novelty. But there wasn't anybody down in Amish country. And the place was packed. And they had jars of real honey, butter from goats, flowers from here, antique collectibles. And people were standing in line. And there was one booth with one old gal there that had a big sign that says, Join the Amish church. Nobody was in that line. You know why? Nobody wants to be Amish. They're a novelty. We go down to see it, show our kids, so we can take pictures of the horse and buggy. So your kid can say, Daddy, what's that in the road? And you say, well, come over here, son, let me show you something else. (laughs) Uh, That's all it is. It isn't about anything. Nobody wants to be an Amish. You know why? Because someplace along the line, they lost their touch with their culture. They stayed, get out of step. They're back in the 1800s living like this is the way it's supposed to be when in reality they lost touch with the culture and nobody, nobody will take them seriously in the world that we're living in. You know why? They're out of context. I'm not picking on them as an individual group. I'm telling you, they lost the ability to penetrate the culture, and now they're a novelty, and nobody wants to be part of them. And boy, let me tell you something. If you think Baptist churches aren't the same way today, oh yeah, we drive cars. But you know what? The Amish have to wear their suit of clothes, and you as a Baptist have to wear yours. The Amish have certain rules. And boy, you know, all them women have to wear long dresses. And all the men have to wear the same kind of shirts. And if you ain't one of them, you ain't one of them. And you know what? Baptists are the same way today. And I'm telling you, we as Baptists look at the Amish and think, whoa, they're way out in left field. Well, I got news for you. The world today is looking at Baptists and saying, whoa, they're way out in left field. And the world wants nothing to do with us like we want nothing to do with the Amish. That's the problem. We have lost. The ability to penetrate our culture. We don't understand where the culture is. Let me tell you something. Every culture has needs. Every culture. And if you're going to go into the mission field, or you're going to build a church, or you're going to do anything for God, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to determine what the needs are of that culture, and then you meet that need. And I'm telling you, That's why in missions, when they go down to Mexico, you find the American missionaries go down to Mexico, they build a little compound, they live like Americans, they wear their little American flag on their lapel, they do keep all the American holidays, and they go out on Sunday morning and Wednesday night to sing in, in churches built like American churches, they try to make the Mexican people dress like American people, they sing American songs, they bring American culture down here, and they wonder why they can't reach the culture. Oh, let me tell you something. When old Count Zindador put his missions program together with the Moravians, there were men, but when they went into the mission field, they went into the mission field and took it on, and when they became, they were men that went down there to be missionaries to the slaves in in this country in the 1700s, and they sold themselves into slavery, never to come back, gave up every right they had, because they understood to reach the slave, you have to be a slave. And if you're going to reach a culture, you have to reach that culture. That's what's going on here. He's given you one of the greatest stories, one of the greatest lines, one of the greatest stories on ministry and missions you'll ever find in your life. That boy is dead. Picture of an unsaved man. Elisha's the man of God. He has the ability to give him life. So he stretches himself on him, and he puts his eyes where his eyes is. He puts his hands where his hands is, and he puts his mouth where his mouth is. There it is. If you're going to penetrate a culture, if you're going to win people to Christ, you need to see and understand why people unsaved look at the things the way they do. You want to penetrate a culture? He put his mouth to mouth. You need to understand why an unsaved man says the things that he says. He put his hands on his hand because the penetrate a culture of an unsaved man. You, as a Christian, need to understand why an unsaved man does the things that he does. Oh, I wish I had time to go through it all today. What a great story that is of penetrating a culture, keys to every culture. Understanding why an unsaved man says what he says. Why he looks at things the way he does. And why he does things the way he does. His mouth to mouth, his eyes to eyes, and his hands to his hands. And that's what's wrong. The Amish lost that concept, and they're living back there, and nobody takes them seriously. And the Baptist churches today have lost that concept, and that's why nobody's taking us seriously. And that's why the gospel, the grace of God, has hit a slam dunk and isn't going anywhere. Ah, got to move on. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, we have the story of Naaman. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, too. You know what Naaman's all about? It's how an army captain got saved. Yeah. The Bible says about Naaman. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, and he was a mighty man of valor. Bible says that that Naaman was a great man. His master thought he was great. He was a mighty man of valor. He pictures for us every unsaved man who has attained status and glory and fame and riches, has a nice job, has a nice house, has everything he needs, but he doesn't have Christ. Because the Bible says, in spite of this, he was a captain of the host, a great man, honorable, mighty man of valor. Oh, but he was a leper. Leper is a type of sin. And the story you got In chapter 5 is a picture of what a man with everything that American men have or American women have today have to go through to come to the place where they find Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. Because the fact that he was a great man, the fact that he was an honorable man, the fact that he was a great man in his master's sight, the fact that he was a mighty man of valor didn't take a the fact that he was still a leper. And you may be the greatest, richest, most famous person. You may have a great job. You may have a great future. You may have people patting you on the back saying you're the greatest kid that ever lived. You're the great gal that ever lived. But the bottom line, if you haven't trusted Christ your own personal Savior, you still are a sinner. Oh, to go through that story and find out. Oh, wish I had time to preach it today. Oh, to go through that. How many times I've laid that thing out in the mission, that great message on, on how an army captain got saved to show him when he comes down to the man of God, the man of God, he, uh, he has it in his mind that it's going to be one way. And the man of God says, oh, uh-uh, pal, it's going to be this way. Oh, the struggles people have. Well, in chapter 6, you have the battle of Israel versus the king of Syria. And what you've got here, my friend, in this chapter is all the insight you could ever want on the success or the failure of your spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 tells you the armor, tells you where to put the armor. Ephesians chapter 6 tells you about the battle, but if you want to figure it out and you want to see the inside and you want to see it, I'm telling you one thing, it's 2 Kings chapter 6, the battle of Israel versus the king of Israel, king of Syria. And a great principle is this, your Christian insistence brings Satan's resistance. Your Christian resistance to do what's right is going to bring Satan's resistance. That's why you find some of God's people come to church, get saved, try to do what's right. Bang! Six weeks later, two months later, three months later, a year later... Don't see them anymore. You know why? Because they wanted to do what's right. They tried to do what's right, but they discounted one great thing, and that is this. The moment you say in your heart, God, I'm going to, I'm going to do what's right, the devil says, we'll see about that. Your Christian insistence will bring Satan's resistance. And you have in that chapter all the insight of why you either be successful or why you will be a failure. And wow, what a great story and study that is on the battle, the spiritual battle that you and I face every day. Then we get into chapter 7. Another one of my favorite stories. Oh my goodness, they're all my favorite stories. Wow, you know what you got here? You got a famine in Samaria. Yeah, what a great principle this is. You know what this chapter shows you? This chapter shows the great truth. (coughs) How an unsaved man, a scientist, a doctor, a king, a president... A teacher, a philosopher, you name it. How that person can sit right on top of the answer that'll unlock the universe, that'll unlock politics, that'll unlock science, that'll unlock history, unlock everything in this world, and he can't ever get the final part because he thinks the Word of God and God's a joke. Yeah, yeah. You know what, one time Billy Graham tried to witness to Einstein. And he tried to tell Einstein about the fact that he needed to be saved. You know what Einstein said? Einstein said to Billy Graham, you know what? He says I could never believe in a God that's not a mathematical formula. You know that he was about that far from getting saved when he made that statement? Because if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that God is a mathematical formula. Why, they're in the scientist world and tell you that the universal language of the whole universe is math. Yeah, you know what? It is. You know why? Because God ever does things by a number system. My, who didn't figure that out? Einstein couldn't. You know why? He thought God was a joke. Billy Graham one time witnessed a Winston Churchill. And you know what he said? He said, Mr. Churchill, I'd like to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to tell you about God. Winston Churchill said, Do You really mean to tell me that God is interested in the affairs of men? And that guy had just written four volumes on English history and couldn't find God anywhere in the world. Why well, the whole history of England is a picture of God behind the scenes doing something, I read a book one time called Dreadnoughts. Somebody gave it to me for my birthday, June 14th. <clears throat> I know you missed it this year, but put it on your calendar for next. <laughs> Dreadnought. Read the book about that thick. You know what it was? It was about the British Navy, how at the turn of the century, the British Navy was the greatest Navy in the world, and how that the British had empires everywhere in the world. And this whole book went on and on and on about great Queen Victoria and this great white fleet. And this fleet would stretch out for 30 miles in both directions, and it was an incredible thing. And it would sail around the world, and it would keep, when Come into the harbors, all the colonists, all the Arabs, all the Indians, all the natives, everybody where the British colony would tremble because the navy. And it said that England was the greatest nation the world has ever seen because of this great armada. And he said that like he was serious. Let me tell you something, England was great because she had a book. And that's why she became the great nation. He sat right on top of the answer and couldn't see it. Now, when you get in this story right here, you got a story down here, and there's a famine. And Elisha comes in, and he says, don't worry, boys. Tomorrow, there's going to be all kinds of food. And one of the king's court laughs and says, oh, right. Let me tell you something. If there was windows in heaven, that thing couldn't happen. And you know what Elijah says to him? He says, that's right, Powell. And because you just made that smart aleck remark, you ain't going to see it. 'Cause you're going to get killed in the process. And there are windows in heaven. Go back to Genesis chapter eight and nine. Well, I'll take your old place in Solomon chapter chapter two, where the Bible says in Genesis those windows are open. There's windows up there. I'll tell you something else. John chapter ten. There's a door up there. And scientists talk all the time about going into a parallel universe. And maybe that's the key to eternity. They talk about wormholes and black holes and dark holes and the parallel universe. And they talk about the fact, and I know a lot of it's ghastly, make no difference." but let me tell you something. they got to have some base of truth. What is this thing about eternity anyhow? How do you figure it all out? Well, I know this. I know there's a door that opens up, John chapter 10, that Christ came down through, that he went back up through, that you're going up through, and there's windows up there, that when God opened it up, a flood came down and drowned the place out in the Song of South, chapter 2, right now as we speak, the Bible says, my Savior's of the Lord Jesus Christ looking through that window at his bride. And you know what? Want to laugh at it? Go ahead. Bam, back in 2 Kings chapter 7, laughed at it and he got killed. Because that's exactly how. But you see, he sat right on top of the answer. He even gave the right answer. He just didn't believe the book that it came from. He thought God and the Word of God and the windows in heaven were a joke. Oh, what a great chapter that is. Ain't got time to get into it. Then we go chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Oh, and it's all the same. You know what it is? <clears throat> chapter 8, 9 is just one bad king after another. You got Jehoram, Jehu, Azariah. You got Je- uh, Jehoaz in chapter 10. Oh, chapter 12 is a good one. And I'll tell you something. If you study these guides when you have time... You're going to find each one of these guys a picture of some character or some character in our nature. They're great character studies. You take a guy in chapter 12, verse 1 called Jehoash. Jehoash Jehoash means fire for Jehovah. By the end of his life, his name is changed to Joash. You know what Joash means? It means fire. You know what you got? See it all the time. You got a picture of a young man starts out on fire for God, winds up just being on fire for himself. Oh, to study his life. 13.1, got Jehoaz. Then you got Jehoaz, uh, Joash, another Joash in chapter 13. He's a great picture. You know what he's a picture of? He's a picture of a man who's got the Word of God, got the right Bible. He just doesn't believe it's the right Bible. Oh, yeah. you got to study his life. You want to find some modern-day 20th century men there, study chapter 13, verse 10. Then you've 14, you got a Mesa, Jeroboam II, uh, Azariah you got Zechariah in chapter 15. you got Shulam, uh, Mah- Maham, Pekiah, Pekiah, Hosea, Jotham, Ahaz. They're all the same. One bad king after another. Oh, but want to mark this. In 16.6, the word Jew shows up for the first time in your Bible. You see, we use the word Jew today as, a, as talking about all Jews. But in the Bible, in, in, in chapter 16, verse 6, the word Jew is used for the southern tribes. Judah, Jew, comes from there. Just so you know that. Then in chapter 17, verse 1, you got Hosea, another Hosea, and then it's the end. In chapter 17, it's a key chapter. Because when you come through chapter 8 through chapter 17, all you've got is one bad king after another, and it just gets worse. It gets into more depravity, it gets into more ungodliness. And by the time you get to chapter 17, I mean, you begin to see and understand why, for any nation, what will happen to that nation. When they forget God and they leave God's Word and you begin to see the process of decay and degeneration that in time will destroy that nation. And that's what you got in the first part of that book. Now we're going to start chapter 18. And in chapter 18, verse 25, you deal with the southern tribes with the same mess. We're now going to talk about Judah. And Judah's in the same mess. And Judah's in such a corrupt way that's unbelievable. In the chapter 18, 19, and 20, you got a man by the name of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is a good king. But it's one of those cases where uh, uh, it, it's too late. Too little, too late. He's a bright spot. He's a good king. But remember I told you when we studied the book of Judges. I told you that the demise of the nation of Israel wasn't going to take place in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. It started all the way back in the book of Judges when they departed from the Word of God. Why? Because a little leaven leavened the whole lump. And what you're seeing right now as the destruction and destroying and the decay of the nation of Israel, the greatest nation ever lived, is because they allowed bad doctrine to get in all the way back to the book of Judges. So Hezekiah shows up, but it's gone too far. Look at chapter, well you don't have to look at it, but write it down. Chapter 18, verse 4, you want to know how far they've gone? Remember back in Numbers, when we come through the book of Numbers, and I showed you how that the brazen serpent in the wilderness, when they were bit with those fiery serpents, that Moses was told to make a brazen serpent and hold it up, and they looked at it and they lived? Remember that? How come I remember it and you don't? I remember it. Well, in chapter 18, verse 4, they're now worshiping that brazen serpent. They've elevated that thing. Somebody kept it, got it in a garage sale, brought it to church, and now they're putting that thing up and they're worshiping it. And oh, Hezekiah goes in and tears it down. Hezekiah gets sick. God says it's time to die. Oh, here comes another good lesson. He prays to God for more time. He, he whines and binds and meaty mouse around saying, Oh, God, I did what was right. You can't kill me now. Why, I'm enjoying life. I don't know how you enjoy all that in godliness, but he was, he was enjoying it. Why he'd want 15 more years in that filth, I don't know, but he did. And it's a great principle. Be content with where you're at. Don't want more than God wants to give you. Of course, in the Old Testament, they had a right to pray for that because that's where the Old Testament was set up. A lot of God's people whining and praying today for God to give them a long life. And the bottom line is, uh, here's what happened. God says, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. He got 15 more years. And during that 15 years, he produced a son by the name of Manasseh, chapter 21. And Manasseh was one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. He'd have been better off if he just went home to God when he was supposed to go home to God. Because when he asked for war, got more time, he produced the end result that broke the back of Israel. And that name is Manasseh. Manasseh was a terrible king. He's wicked. And with him, uh, you begin to find the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4 and 12, which is the last straw for the nation of Israel. And In that particular chapter, he begins to give the prophecy that children are going to sit on the throne and their mothers are going to reign with them. He takes away the great leadership and he puts children on the throne. Now you find boys reigning when they're nine years old, six years old, the king of Israel, from Solomon, David, down to Manasseh. Manasseh is 12 years old when he takes the throne to govern the nation of Israel. And his mother reigns with him. Oh, and we see it. Chapter 22 through chapter 23, you got a man by the name of Josiah. He tries to do right, but by this time the other nations and all the filth and ungodliness has eaten them away to the place where there is absolutely nothing. Now I want to take a moment today in closing here, and I want to explain to you what Baal worship is. Because Baal worship is what wrecked this nation. And Baal worship starts all the way back in the book of Judges. We see it connected all through the nation of Israel. Now let me tell you about the concept of Baal worship. Baal is the sun god. The sun is Baal. He is God. And as God, the sun then, must be the principal author of life. We have the sun, and then we have the moon. The moon will be the female principle. The moon follows the sun through the sky. The moon reflects his light. The moon, then, will be the female counterpart to the God counterpart. So in history, you find Ashtoreth, you find Iris, you find Aphrodites. They're all female deities that worship the sun through various stages of Baal worship down through history. This woman is called the Queen of Heaven, Jeremiah chapter 44. All this leads, in time, to the deification of the planets and the stars. And you find that they worship the planets. That's why in the book of Acts you find Mercury, you find Mars, you find Jupiter. They deify all the planets, they deify all the stars. This is where your astrology comes in. This is where your horoscope comes in. And this is where all of the things take place. And yes, you'll find the horoscopes in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 13. We're talking about the astrologers all dying and going to hell. This is where you find the worship of the stars. This is where they worship the sons of God. And the sons of God now, the constellations have become the sons of God with Gemini and Taurus and Orion and Arcturus and Ophius and Hercules and Sagittarius and all of the rest of them. And you begin to find that they begin to worship thee. Now along with this, because you've got a female deity and a male deity, you've got to have a sexual union. And the sun crossing through the eclipse is a picture of the union of, a, of the sun and the moon. And so along with Baal worship came the sexual union of men and women. And it got so bad and it got so godless and it got so unbelievable that by the time we come to this point, here's what you got. Here's what you got. The temple of God is right here. From the temple of God, you'll find up here, up off to the whatever up here, you'll find a place where the sodomites hang out you'll find them connected with the house of the Lord in chapter 23, verse 7. Over here, you'll find the temple prostitutes in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. Down over someplace else, a little distance away, you'll find uh, uh, chapter 23, verse 11, you'll find the animals, particularly the horses and the sheep. Now, Baal has no, has no caring of what kind of sexual preference. Here's the way it works. A man goes into that temple... He takes his sexual preference. It may be animals, it may be women, or it may be men. You give back the offering, the offering goes to the building program. It goes to run everything. And the sexual union with Baal follows everything with the female deities and all of this, and the sexual union takes place, and when the women have the illegitimate children... Then follow it down here in verse 10. They bring it down to the valley of Hinnom. That's where Gehenna is. And they have down there Topheth and Molech. Topheth meaning drums, Moloch being the big god, that is the molten god with a hole in his belly when they build the fire with the mechanical hands, and they bring those illegitimate children down to Moloch, put them in his hands, and while they beat the drums of Topheth that drowned out the screens, they crank the mechanical hands, and the illegitimate child is dumped into the belly, and this is what is called passing through the fire of Moloch in your Bible, offering up those kids to the sun god. This is why when you go over to Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 20, and chapter 23, verse 11, you'll find that God has no use for those animals. David fixed those horses so they couldn't be used in that fashion. And that's why when you go back to the Old Testament, and the nation of Israel went into those nations, God said, you kill every man, you kill every woman, you kill every child, and you kill every animal. Because what's going on? Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1 through 30, will give you the details of what's going on during this time. This is why the men and the women and the children and the animals are all killed when they're defeated. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27, this is why God says, kill the Sodomites. Goliath was a byproduct of this. Yes, he was. Oh, the Bible gives you great insight. The Bible gives you great insight. You know about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what was taking place down there. And you know when Lot finally got out. But the first thing that takes place is incest with his own two daughters. It shows you the perversion from Genesis right on through. Now Goliath is an interesting character. When you study his life in light of what we just talked about, he's a Philistine. Philistines are right in the middle of all this. And this is the kind of stuff that has turned the temple of God into... The fornicating, godless perversion that God comes down and finally wipes it out. Baal worship, worship of the son, the male and the female deity, has permeated Israel. It's destroyed them. They're now having sex with men and women. This is all covered in Leviticus. Animals. It's, in an, it's an unbelievable debauchery. Goliath. Second Samuel chapter 21, verses 18. 1 Chronicles chapter 20 verses 5 through 7. When David goes out to fight him, the Bible says David takes five smooth stones. We've talked about it before. He uses one for Goliath. But the Bible says Goliath had four brothers. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, you find that those four brothers are named. He has four brothers. So David said, you know what? If you want to make this a family affair, we'll go five for five and we'll take out the boys. But now in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 18, 21, it tells the same story. In this place, they're not his brothers. They're his sons. Now every Bible scholar in the world will tell you that's an unfortunate scribal error. No, it's not. No, it's not. They were his sons and they were his brothers. You figure the rest out from there. They were his sons, and they were his brother through a union with his own mother. And this is what is taking place and what is going on during this time in the nation of Israel. The temple was a place of worship to the sun god. And you take your sexual preference, whatever it is, whatever you want to worship God with a union and how it all works, and when the babies are born illegitimately, they're taken down to the valley of Hinnon. That's Gehenna south end of Jerusalem. That's the dump where they buried the bodies in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's where Moloch stood. That's where Topher stood. And they took those kids and they offered them up as a sacrifice to the nation of Israel. Or to the Son of God from the nation of Israel. And God said, you know what? I've had enough. I've had enough. And old Josiah, he comes in and he tries to change it, but too little, too late. And in chapter 24... In chapter 24, this is why this is such an important chapter. In chapter 24, you have the story of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim means Jehovah will establish. God changes his name to Keniah, despised broken idol. And with Jehoiakim and Keniah, you have the great prophecy found in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28, given to Judah, the kingly tribe. And in verse 28, it says this, This man Keniah a desired broken idol. He is a vessel wherein there is no pleasure. Wherefore are they cast out, and his seed is cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed, Judah, shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, ruling any more in Judea. And when God gave that prophet to me and Jeremiah, you know what he did? He fixed the fact that Jesus Christ could never have an earthly father. Because he is so fed up with the kings of Israel and their filth and their depravity and all the stuff that's going on. He says, that's it. And he cuts the kingly line right there. And when he said that prophecy, he fixed that Jesus Christ could never have an earthly father because no man from that earthly line could ever sit on the throne. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, when he brings the kingly line down from David, it stops at the captivity and doesn't go any farther. You want to get Christ's line? You don't get it through Joseph. You get it in Luke chapter 3, and it comes all the way down through Mary. There was no way Christ could have been born of Joseph because the prophecy says that no man from that line, no human king from that line will ever sit on the throne again. Christ has to be virgin born so he comes through Mary, not Joseph. Fulfilling that prophecy. And this is the end of the time of Israel. This is the end of the kingdom of heaven. From this point on, Chapter 25, you have the first deportation to Babylon. We've already seen the ten northern tribes go in. Chapter 17. Now in chapter 25, the southern tribes, the first deportation go into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes down twice, just like the Antichrist is going to do when he attacks Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation period. He comes down in, down in verse 7. He takes, Zechari- he takes Zedekiah, the last king. He puts him in chain, puts his eyes out. But before he does, he slays his own boys in front of him. He puts his eyes out with hot pokers, wraps him in chains, and takes him to Babylon. Time period 586-587 B.C. Second deportation will be in 606 b c when he comes back when he comes back that time he literally destroyed Jerusalem. he kills every man, every woman, every child that' a captive, he burns the temple of God, he takes everything of God, all the furniture, all everything, he takes everything, everything is gone. he takes it down into Babylon, and this is the end of the nation of Israel there's one psalm that fills this whole thing in psalm 78 Psalm 78 is right in the middle of your psalms. And it is a psalm that shows you the end. It brings you through the... It just says everything I said in one storyline that runs about 60 verses. And it shows you why and what God did when He took out the kingdom of heaven. I'll read you one verse. Two verses. Psalm 78:60. This is what God did. So that He, God, forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which He placed among men. And delivered his strength, that's Israel, into captivity. And his glory, Israel, into the enemy's hands. And at this point, everything is done with Israel. From this point, for the next 400 years, even though there's books written about them, even though the book of Ezekiel talks about it for a short period of time, and even though they come back in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, the bottom line is God is finished with the nation of Israel. And there'll never be a nation again until that old John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have just witnessed one of the greatest defeats of one of the greatest nations the world has ever seen. You've just heard the story of the greatest power shift and the greatest doctrinal shift in all of the Bible when God took the kingdom of His glory away from them and then gave it to the devil and the Gentile nations that enter the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles start right there in 606 B.C. or 587 and run up to probably 1918, 1948 at the last. Let me just tell you something. We'll get into this when we get there. We are sitting right on the edge of God coming back and to establish a nation of Israel. I told you Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. You had to read it because we are right there on the verge. The times of the Gentiles in God's mind... Now I know there's still Gentiles in power and there's still Gentiles in rule, but let me tell you something. God is behind the scenes and it's all ready to go. And it's over. The times of the Gentiles have finished and God now has one thing in mind. And when you get this concept, all the revivals, all the churches, all the missions, everything that Christianity is doing comes into crystal clear perspective of what's not happening because God's attention now is to the nation of Israel. Keep your eyes on the Middle East because that's where God's attention's focused and God, the church aid has had its shot. The Laodicean church ends with the rapture of the church and we're over, it's done. And if you don't have your house in order, my friend, you best better get your focus and your perspective squared away where God's is because I'm telling you, He is right on track with what He's doing. And that's what you get when you get the Bible broken down the way we're breaking it down. Every head bowed, every eye closed.